The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 552 for January 8th, 2017. All the news and devices out of CES 2017, T-Mobile cuts fees from its rate plans, and Sprint refreshes Virgin Mobile. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Coppas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android, iOS, and Windows Phone 8 for $1.99. Well, happy CES weekend, everyone. A lot to get to this week, so let's kick things off by going to Qualcomm, and on Tuesday they released its latest Bluetooth audio system on a chip, uh, which is able to provide active noise cancellation for wireless headphones. The CSR8765 lets Bluetooth headphone designers to drop separate dedicated active noise cancellation chips from their headsets and instead add the feature uh, via the Bluetooth radio itself. Qualcomm believes this will let headphone makers create smaller, more powerful headphones that can be used with mobile devices such as phones. Moreover, the CSR8675 includes an embedded 120 megahertz, 24-bit DSP, as well as Qualcomm's APTX and APTX HD audio technologies for high-quality Bluetooth audio. Qualcomm says the module can deliver up to 12 hours of active noise cancellation at reduction rates of negative 23 dB. Now, very interesting topic, obviously, as we have moved on to uh, Apple and their AirPods and and kind of this like refreshed interest in Bluetooth headphones that I guess is really a better way to put it. But um, to to take this piece of the technology, this noise cancellation side, and move it over to the chip that's within the uh, the device itself is incredibly smart. Um, you know, obviously it takes a lot out of the manufacturer's side on the headphone manufacturer's side, um, probably does it quite a bit for the power consumption and power savings then on the, the actual earbuds themselves. Um, and uh, just generally, I'm sure, is going to make for a lot better and cooler designs on headphones. So um, it should be kind of an interesting thing to see kind of what uh, this does here. And I would imagine that we're going to see uh, this particular uh, system on a chip starting to ship within the next few months. Also from Qualcomm, the introduction of the Snapdragon 835 this week. This is its flagship processor for 2017. Qualcomm says the chip is smaller, faster, and more efficient than any previous processor from the company. The system on a chip uses the company's 10 nanometer process, allowing for the chip to be 30% smaller than the Snapdragon 820 and will use 40% less power. Qualcomm says that this helps the 835 perform on average 27% better than the Snapdragon 820. Uh, also, some of the capabilities include uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, lower thermals, and quick charge 4.0. Qualcomm says the chip can deliver more than a day of talk time, more than five days of music playback, and more than seven hours of 4K video streaming. Quick charge 4 can provide up to five hours of battery life and just five minutes of charging. The chip can handle EIS for 4K video capture, the Snapdragon X16 LTE modem, and customized support for 802.11ad Wi-Fi includes 4x4 uh, MIMO and 256QAM uh, digital signal processing, and up to 4K, or excuse me, 4X carrier aggregation for optimized speeds. Qualcomm says its new Qualcomm Haven security platform provides three layers of security for the SOC itself, uh, as well as the device operating system, including biometrics and fingerprint readers and iris scanners. The 835 supports Qualcomm's machine learning platform for object recognition and real-time hand tracking via the camera for better VR and AR. Lastly, the chip can run an always-on low-power virtual assistant. Qualcomm expect to see expects to see the Snapdragon 835 in devices 
during the first half of 2017. We talked a lot last year uh, when CES wrapped up about the Snapdragon 820 kind of being that chipset that everyone was standardizing on. This year, it'll be that 835. Right. And this is, uh, you know, something actually takes it'll take quite a while to actually see in handsets. But this is really what gives the power to run everything we have here. You know, they talk about the uh, the low power virtual assistant where there's a, a part of the chip that can keep running and listening to your commands and actually process commands without firing up the rest of it, which, of course, goes a long way for battery life, which is a big part of what is trying they're trying to work through here. And that's that efficiency of the battery and making sure that uh, you're using that power that you have. Uh, in a better way that lets you last longer. And of course, uh, Quick Charge 4.0, if you happen to find yourself in a spot where you've got to charge up five minutes, gives you five hours, most people can figure that out. So it's a pretty uh, pretty amazing technology to see there in Quick Charge and just what that can do from a time perspective on how fast you can charge. Finally, from Qualcomm, the chipmaker says air fuel wireless charging technology will be built into its Snapdragon series of chips. The support will include all of the logic and primary circuitry to support both inductive and resonant wireless charging technologies. The Snapdragon 835 just discussed will be the first chip with air fuel. In addition, all new 600 series chips announced in 2017 and beyond will include the technology. Manufacturers will still need to include a charging coil or some minor passive components in order for the phone to support wireless charging, but this will make it easier and more affordable for phone makers to include wireless charging in their devices. I have to imagine wireless charging will continue, uh, I think, in 2017 to be this technology that just becomes the norm. People are, are just expecting it at this point. It's a very nice to use, very easy uh, from a just put your phone down, don't have to worry about plugging it in. And uh, certainly I would hope to see this in devices from other companies as well. Hint, hint, Apple. Yeah, exactly. Well, they have it for the watch, so they we, we know that they know it they that it exists, right, as an actual technology that can be used to charge batteries. And it just uh, reminds me back of the day when I have used to have that BlackBerry a million years ago, and I had the they they called it kind of the zero insertion force dock, where you literally just just set it on the dock and the and the uh, the battery charges because it had special little contacts on the side of the the device to uh, make the charge. I mean, it was almost the, it was the next best thing to wireless charging, even though there's connectors on there, you didn't have to physically connect a, uh, a cable to it with two hands and, and actually, you know, like the, the lightning adapter for the iPhone takes quite a bit of force and it's really hard to do with uh, with just one hand. Yeah. And uh, in, it is interesting because I had one of those as well. And, you know, um, I, I, I loved it. You just dropped the phone on it. And the other part of it was, of course, the BlackBerry lasted for two plus days on a charge. And so you didn't even have to charge the thing every night. Um, but, you know, as we get as we get more and more um, you know, into these advanced devices that need to have, uh, you know, bigger batteries or batteries that are stretched further, you'd love to be able to charge them up in easier and faster ways. So uh, I'm glad to see here that uh, Qualcomm is supporting uh, both of these technologies with air fuel in the future processors that they're coming out with. And hopefully most uh, manufacturers will take that and use that as part of their designs. On to the Intel side, the chipmaker Wednesday announced the next generation modem for mobile devices named the Intel 5G modem. Intel says the 5G modem will help push the development of 5G and relies on key 3G PP 5G NR, that stands for new radio technology, such as a massive MIMO, um, low latency and advanced channel coding. It also includes both sub six gigahertz and millimeter wave capabilities. Intel hopes the modem will support early 5G field trials at the same time it will hopefully also drive 3GPP NR specifications forward. Intel is working with AT&T and other companies to test and define what might eventually be 5G. 
And New York Governor Andrew Andrew Cuomo this week announced that on January 9th, all underground subway stations in New York City will have cellular and Wi-Fi coverage. The system was built and maintained by Transit Wireless, and that includes all four major wireless carriers at all 278 underground stations. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, the, the subway systems, the, um, the system here in Washington was recently, uh, there was a recent announcement that said that all of the stations will now have Wi-Fi at their stations. Uh, New York is going a step further with that and offering both cellular and Wi-Fi coverage. So that is obviously nice to see if you happen to be someone that takes the system regularly. And 278 stations they have? Wow. I mean, that's not that big of an area to have that many stations. I mean, obviously, the population density is huge, but wow, that's uh, that's very impressive. It's like there's a little city underneath the city or something like that. But tubes, you would hope that there would be, uh, you know, coverage in there. And, and now there is. Well, at least in the stations themselves, not necessarily in the tubes, but in the stations you can use your devices. Uh, on to some carrier news. Cricket Wireless customers shouldn't expect to see an improvement in data speeds anytime soon, despite the LTE performance gains by parent company AT&T. Cricket currently caps all customers' data speeds at 8 megabits per second, even though it's phones, and the network support speeds up to 10 times faster than that. AT&T is deploying three-channel carrier aggregation and plans to upgrade to four-channel carrier aggregation soon, delivering LTE advanced speeds as quick as one gigabit per second. Those speeds will be reserved for AT&T's own customers. Cricket CEO John Dwyer told PhoneScoop that the customers that are more interested in value than performance uh, are more interested with the experience, or are mostly satisfied, that is, with that experience that's delivered by 8 megabits per second. So, for example, AT&T's new DirecTV Now application requires much less than 8 megabits despite its video-heavy nature and can easily run across Cricket's network. On a related note, uh, Dwyer said that the company may eventually offer a zero-rated data program, but hasn't made any firm commitments. Cricket has made progress in expanding its point-of-sale footprint. The company now claims to have more than 14,000 retail locations, of which 4,300 are branded Cricket stores. Anyway, to me, 8 megabits doesn't seem bad at all. It's not uh, spectacular, but it's not that bad. Yeah, it isn't, you know, and I, I guess if you can count on it all the time, that's a whole other piece of it too, right? I mean, certainly... That's your theoretical maximum here. Um, but uh, yeah, and if you're paying a lot less, then you know certainly you, you get what you pay for and uh, will be uh, obviously a nice, uh, a nice thing at some point when they do increase that speed, but uh, don't be looking for it anytime soon is what they're saying. Verizon Wireless no longer offering two-year contracts with device subsidies. They've also raised the cost of activating new devices by $10. These changes went into effect this week on January 5th. Moving forward, all postpaid customers will need to pay for devices via monthly equipment installment plans. The $10 line activation increase brings the fee from $20 to $30. And usually these kinds of things do not affect people that are on their current plan. Usually what I've discovered is that if your plan, if you had uh, contracts with your plan previously, you may be able to continue to re- uh, renew your contract and actually get uh, the device subsidized price that you've been used to. And at least that's what I found with Verizon so far. Interesting. Yeah. And obviously there's in a, in a world where most people are not on subsidized plans anymore. They're you know splitting out the, you know, the equipment fee separate from your monthly plan. Um, you know, this may not affect as many people, though many Verizon customers have been Verizon customers for a long time and certainly are, are you know, on you know these plans for a specific reason and uh, are not going to want to pay uh, more for their devices uh, so they can uh, just stay on hope one of these contracts, hopefully, uh, has been your experience, as you say. Sprinting, Sprint announcing this weekend that it intends to relaunch its Virgin Mobile brand later this year and will use the prepaid service to change things up. 
They said, we've put most of our attention in the postpaid handset business, where is, uh, which is where 80% of the profit from the industry comes. Now that the business is stable, we're putting a lot of energy in Boost and Virgin. And uh, CEO Marcello Claire says, I envision Virgin being our disruptive brand. You're going to see us test different models. We're, one model we're testing is, rather than subsidizing handsets, we're providing free airtime with no subsidy on the handset. So you're going to see Virgin be our disruptor brand, and you're going to see Boost be a very strong brand that will give good competition to both Cricket and Metro. Claire did not provide a timeline for the brand relaunch. T-Mobile on Tuesday unveiled new pricing for Internet of Things connected devices such as smart meters. The T-Mobile IoT access pack includes five megabits of data, excuse me, five megabytes of data for $20 per year for the first year and $6 per year after that. Also, customers can get unlimited data for their IoT equipment at 64 kilobits per second for $25 per device, device per year. To help people get started, T-Mobile will cover the cost of a specific module for up to $16 per module via bill credits. The new pricing is effective immediately. T-Mobile expects its business customers, such as utilities, to be using and taking advantage of the pricing rather than consumers. On the consumer side, T-Mobile to Thursday announcing plans that will it will now include all taxes and fees in the advertised price of its plans. The company's existing T-Mobile One plan is included in this policy, and the price will stay the same, but now include all taxes and fees. Furthermore, the company will phase out all other plans effective January 22nd. T-Mobile One with unlimited data will be the only plan the company offers, though note there are actually two T-Mobile One plans, both with various restrictions on that unlimited data that is offered. Customers already on other plans can keep them as is, but no other plans will be offered to customers looking to switch to the carrier or to a different plan. All the prepaid plans of T-Mobile will still offer tiered data offerings. Now, along with that new single plan, T-Mobile announcing Kickback. This is an automatic bill credit for up to $10 per line per month for lines that use two gigabytes of data or less in that month. Starting January 22nd, customers of the company's single choice and T-Mobile One plans can opt in to, in to Kickback via the T-Mobile application or via customer service. After January 22nd, new signups for T-Mobile One will automatically be opted in to kickback. And based on the two changes, uh, no tax and fees, which is usually around $15 a month for an average line, and that $10 bill credit, you're talking about an out-the-door cost of the T-Mobile One plan at $60 per month, that is if you use less than two gigs of data. So um, you can compare that to a plan that costs approximately $45 a month, add in that $15 in fees, and that initial $70 per month price tag doesn't look as bad as it once did uh, as the only plan now that T-Mobile is offering. So this kind of raises a lot of questions, and I, and I want to talk about what this actually means now for T-Mobile. Right. I mean, it, it, the, the price now is kind of in line when, when you look at this basic thing uh, with the competing carriers. And sometimes in, in, in some cases, it's actually more expensive than the base prices available from other carriers. But, uh, you know, you have to look at the features and benefits and, and what it means to you specifically. So, you know, on the surface, it seems that, you know, they going to a single plan that's $70 a month, it seems that they feel they're in a position now to push higher rates to all new customers and let the current customers benefit from being those early adopters. Basically, unless you're looking to spend, um, you know, again, on the surface with what you'd spend on Verizon or AT&T, you may not now switch over 
uh, or add more lines with them if there's something, uh, you know, if you're if you're already with them. So um, but I do think there's something to the psychology. And I feel like there will be new benefits coming to the T-Mobile One customers in the near future that will eventually entice people to switch over to these new plans in order to, I'll just say, keep up with what is being offered on them. You know, absolutely, because what what's happened here, and and it is a you know, it's a, it's it's a good strategy where they they drop the prices and a lot of services, add a bunch of things free, and drop the price of the plans down. Where you know, you know, people like yourself who wouldn't have normally would not have gone to T-Mobile was enticed enough to move over to them, and uh, you were pleasantly surprised with how good their network now is. And in most places, it it's uh, very good and even better than Verizon, uh, which you had before. And now that They've got all those customers recommending T-Mobile to uh, everybody else. Now they can actually charge these prices and get away with it and have happy customers that will not be switching away from T-Mobile. Yep, that's right. And uh, I, I think I mentioned this before. I mean, it's it's not like I just have the service and it's it's really very good. But I actually, on that promo that gave us free data lines for tablets, I, I grabbed a couple of those lines. And I actually pulled out my Verizon card out of my iPad. I'm using my T-Mobile card in it because it is just that much better in the places that I spend my time. And that's that's really what this comes down to is where you spend your time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just find that generally that that's what works best for me. But, um, you know, the, moving on, I also think that John Ledger um, has, you know, has got some other tricks up his sleeve here. You know, he commented that the company is entering um, the year in a strong position. Uh, he was also quoted saying that they will be considering continued strong individual growth uh, as a company and various forms of consolidation around our brand and platform of growth. And so you see pretty clearly, uh, you pretty clearly have to say that is that that there's one of many potential future outcomes of the industry structure. And he says, but who knows? We will wait and see. So perhaps um, this was, as we suspected all along, about getting subscriber counts increased to a point high enough where they could eventually sell off the company. Uh, the year is still obviously very young. A lot of things will definitely happen. Um, and I'm not saying that somebody's going to buy them uh, or they're going to buy somebody, but it does seem like where they're they're kind of aligning themselves into a position where they don't have as much kind of like stuff hanging out there. And it's really on a streamlined mission and makes it a lot easier to pick up a company. Right. Well, if you look at the, the you know, the company position and the, the financials and the uh, you know what 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 this means to them that this the, the growth of the subscribers looks great on paper right you show all these quarters of massive growth to somebody who looks at the at these numbers and then you've got the the actual then customer base is way much way bigger so it, you've got that now stable foundation that makes the company that much more healthy so that means it's much more attractive to uh you know to a, a buyer or to be sold Yep. And if you can, you know, if you can offset, I would imagine, you know, some of the costs that they had to, to spend to acquire customers uh, by other things, you know, they can, you know, they can pull some levers internally within the company to make some changes and, and, and figure out how to fund those types of programs. Uh, then ultimately, you've got a recurring revenue stream that is now much higher, literally millions of, of, of customers more than what it was just a few years back. And and so to your point, you know, the business looks good. It looks a lot more solid than it did a few years ago. And of course, T-Mobile also plans to continue building out its LTE network over the course of the year. It expects to have LTE available to 320 million people by the end of the year. That would make it on par with Verizon. So keep that in mind that basically they are covering the same number of people. 
Also, T-Mobile announcing their preliminary results from the fourth quarter of 2016. 4.1 million net new postpaid phone customers. The best results in the industry. So uh, very interesting to see that they continue to, to have this growth. I would imagine that uh, that promo where they were giving away lines was really enticing people either to switch over or to just add lines. So $4 million is is pretty substantial. Usually we're talking about more like a million customers in a quarter. So very strong numbers from T-Mobile coming out at the end of 2016. And TCL, uh, moving into device news, TCL, the parent corporation of Alcatel, unveiled a new handset strategy moving forward. The company will continue to build its Alcatel-branded smartphones that target the low and value end of the market. The devices will run Android and will generally be sold via carriers and the open market. The company will also work closely with BlackBerry, yes, BlackBerry, to design BlackBerry-branded handsets for North America and other markets. TCL will make the hardware but rely on BlackBerry's hardened version of Android with government-grade security and business software on board. TCL sees the new partnership with BlackBerry as a way to get its phones to the high-end and enterprise segments of the market. BlackBerry and TCL hope to regain the trust of corporations that have in recent years turned to Apple and Samsung for employee devices. TCL plans to work with BlackBerry's sales team to sell BlackBerry-branded handsets directly to businesses, but it also intends to create new carrier deals to reach customers via carrier stores over time. TCL's Steve Custuli uh, uh, says that the BlackBerry DTEC50 and DTEC60 which are rebranded variants of the Alcatel Idol 4 and 4S, are performing well and have helped level off the decline of the BlackBerry sales in North America. TCL believes it can reverse the decline over time with a range of unique BlackBerry handsets. The company also revealed its first entirely new BlackBerry smartphone that is scheduled to debut later this year. The phone has no name or any stated specs. It's a slab-style device with both a touchscreen and a physical QWERTY keyboard. TCL didn't share any specific details about the phone other than uh, it will have an aluminum chassis and dual cameras with a fingerprint reader, USB-C, and non-removable battery. TCL said it will fully announce the device at Mobile World Congress in February. And TCL will continue to support BlackBerry OS 10 and pointed out that it recently released BBOS 10.3.3 for older phones such as the BlackBerry Classic. Moving on to Android, a ton of new devices, as always, out of CES, and it started early with Samsung on Monday announcing the Galaxy A7, A5, and A3, three handsets that fill in the middle of Samsung's lineup of Android devices. All three phones feature metal frames, glass fronts, and back panels, IP68 protection against dust and water, dedicated camera buttons, and support for Samsung Pay. All three will ship with Android 6 Marshmallow and support memory cards up to 256 gigs. The A7 is the largest of the Galaxy A series with a 5.7-inch full HD display, 1.9 gigahertz octa-core processor, 3 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of storage, front and rear 16-megapixel cameras, uh, both have an aperture of f1.9 for better low-light performance, and a battery that is 3,600 mAh with rapid charging. The A5 is in the middle with a 5.2-inch full HD display, 1.9 gigahertz octa-core processor, 3 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of onboard storage, front and rear 16 megapixel cameras, a 3,000 mAh battery with rapid charging. And the A3, the smallest in uh, the line of Galaxy A handsets, 4.7-inch 720p HD display with a 1.6 gigahertz octa-core processor, 2 gigabytes of RAM, 16 gigs of storage, 
13 megapixel main camera, 8 megapixel front camera, uh, both at, with an f1.9 aperture. The A3 includes the 2350 milliamp hour battery with rapid charging. Samsung said the Galaxy A series w- will ship in Russia later this month. Other markets to follow. Uh, no word on whether it will be coming to the U.S. or if they'll be releasing Quattro models of all of those devices. Yeah, what's interesting about these middle-range Samsungs, I don't really ever see anybody with devices other than the flagship Samsung devices. I see the Galaxy Note and the Galaxy uh, S devices. Uh, do you see anybody with any of these other mid-range phones? Um, n- not regularly. Um, I have seen them, obviously, around, but I don't generally... I have a lot of friends that I talk to that don't have iPhones. Mostly it's iPhones, especially in, in, in the enterprise. Um, but, I, you know, every once in a while I will see people that have, like, Nexuses. I see uh, when, when there are people that have Android phones, they have Nexuses. But, yeah, these mid-range phones, yeah, not, not definitely not a whole lot of them out there. Right, and then for me, the other, the, you know, the, the devices I see most of are, like, the Android, the bottom, the really low-end uh, prepaid Android phones. Yeah, and that that's very true too. I mean, you're getting these like, you know, very I'll just say like sub hundred dollar phones, and they look outdated, right? They look like super old technology, but it's on a basically a new phone. And I would just like to point out, you totally missed my Audi joke in there about these. They're not going to release a Quattro version of any of these. I got gotcha. you. I well, I wasn't quite sure where you're going with that one. Yes, the A3, A5. Right, right. You're absolutely right. I it went right over my head, and it really shouldn't have. <laughs> Moving on, Huawei Tuesday announcing the Honor 6X, a follow-up to the 5X that improves on specs and design. The 6X features a 2.5D curved glass front and aluminum rear panel to give it a metal and glass chassis. The phone includes a fingerprint reader for biometric security, a 5.5-inch full HD resolution screen. The 6X relies on Huawei's Kirin 655 processor, which is an octa-core design, four high-power 2.1 gigahertz cores and four low-power 1.7 gigahertz cores. The processor is accompanied by three gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of storage, and it supports memory cards of uh, an undeterminate size. The main camera includes a 12-megapixel sensor, uh, second 2-megapixel sensor with Pro Mode with Booka night shooting and special filters, uh, as well as a wide aperture range from F, get this, 0.95 to uh, F16. The phone has a 8-megapixel front-facing camera. Um, so also camera tools that includes time-lapse, audio control, beauty, and makeup mode. I'm guessing that's just a selfie mode. And food mode <laughs> for all your food images. Uh, the 3,340 milliamp hour battery supports up to two days of battery life. Huawei said the Honor will be made available on January 4th, unlocked and sold online. It supports US LTE bands 245, 12, 20, and 38. It costs $250. Huawei plans to sell it for $200 during flash sales on January 10th, 17th, 24th, and 31st. So I guess if you're going to buy it, just wait for one of those days. You can get it for 200 bucks. Asus this week announcing the Zenfone AR, the first phone to support both Project Tango AR and Daydream VR from Google. The handset features a 5.7-inch WQHD AMOLED display, Qualcomm Snapdragon 821 processor, 8 gigs of RAM, an advanced vapor cooling system, triple cameras on the back support Tango applications with a 23-megapixel main camera, depth camera, and motion tracking camera. Other features include NFC memory card slot, USB-C port, 3.5-millimeter audio jack, and Cat12 LTE. The 3300 milliamp hour battery sports quick charging 3. It will run Android 7 Nougat and it'll be available in the second quarter. 
Asus also announcing the Zenfone 3 Zoom, a new optical zoom phone that uses two cameras, much like the iPhone 7 Plus. Both the standard and 2.3x zoom cameras are 12 megapixel and can do portrait mode with a depth effect, and the main lens has a f1.7 aperture. Other camera features include OIS, laser focusing, raw support, dedicated color sensor for improved white balance, and includes an extra-large 5,000 mAh battery that can be used to charge other devices via the USB-C connector. That's interesting. Uh, specs include a Qualcomm Snapdragon 625 processor, 5.5-inch Full HD display, fingerprint sensor, memory card slot, 35 millimeter audio jack. The U.S. version will include LTE Band 17 to support AT&T's network. LG this week effectively signaled the end of its support for modular accessories with the upcoming announcement of its 2017 flagship handset. The G6 will move away from the modular design of last year's G5 and will instead focus on aesthetics and usability, according to the Wall Street Journal. The G5 featured a removable bottom piece that could be replaced with snap-in modules, something most people aren't interested in doing. LG also announced that the G6 will in the very be announced in the very near future, uh, likely at the Mobile World Congress trade show in February, though they say they haven't exactly re- announced uh, decided when they're going to release it. Uh, LG plans to initially sell the G6 in North America, Europe, and South Korea. Price is expected to be between five and six hundred dollars. Yeah, I, it just it, you know we've talked about this numerous times with these modular phones. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it really doesn't uh, uh, because it, it, they become too bulky and it's just not enough volume to make these things uh, uh, worth it. Like the 3D technology of the smartphone of last year, basically. It's something that kind of cool, but are you actually going to use it? No, it's just not something that you're going to take the time out of your day to use. ZTE Wednesday said it plans to offer its Blade series phones to U.S. customers for the first time with the Blade 8, uh, excuse me, V8. The 5.5-inch Full HD display has curved edges and Gorilla Glass 3. The V8 is powered by a Snapdragon 625 processor with 3 gigs of RAM and 32 gigs of storage. It supports memory cards up to 28, excuse me, 128 gigabytes and a second SIM card as well. The V8 has a twin 13-megapixel camera both on the front and the back. ZTE says the second camera helps with the features such as Booka for blurring the background. The front cam- excuse me, the front camera is 8 megapixels, so there's two 13 megapixels on the back. The ZTE says the 3140 milliamp hour battery delivers all day power. It supports quick charge 2 for rapid power-ups when needed. Lastly, the V8 includes a front-mounted fingerprint reader. ZTE is selling the Blade uh, V8 unlocked via Amazon, Newegg, and Best Buy uh, for $230, available now for pre-order. ZTE also announcing on Wednesday that a crowdsourced device known as the Hawkeye is now available for pre-order via Kickstarter. ZTE picked the Hawkeye name for its Project CSX device for more than 500 submissions after spending a year fielding and voting for thousands of ideas submitted by people around the globe. The winning design, a self-adhesive smartphone uh, that can track eye movement, is expected to ship in the third quarter of 2017. Initial backers can order the handset for $200. And Huawei Thursday said it will begin selling the Mate 9 flagship smartphone in the U.S. starting January 6th. The device will be available online, unlocked with support for U.S. GSM and LTE networks. It costs $600 and will gain support for Amazon's Alexa voice assistant in a feature software update, though Huawei didn't say when. New Mobile this week announcing the X5 smartphone at CES. The X5 is a full uh, 5.5-inch Full HD display with powered uh, powered by a MediaTek MT6750T 1.5 gigahertz octa-core processor, 3 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of storage, support for memory cards up to 128 gigs. 
New selected Sony camera chips for the device with a 13 megapixel BSI sensor on the back, 5 megapixel wide angle sensor on the front. It supports US LTE bands 2, 4, 7, 12, and 17 for compatibility with both AT&T and T-Mobile. It also, of course, packs Bluetooth, GPS, NFC, Wi-Fi, and has an FM radio. Lastly, the phone has a 2950 milliamp hour battery, runs Android 7 Nougat out of the box. Now, New Mobile also gave the X5 support for two SIM cards in a removable tray, but the handset also includes News Connect i1 eSIM technology. So the eSIM allows the X5 to roam onto on, in other countries um, on their networks at local rates. Introductory pricing for roaming is approximately $2 per day for 500 megabytes of high-speed data overseas. People who exceed that daily data limit will be throttled, but will have full access to the 500 megs again the following day. The eSIM means that users don't have to hunt down a local SIM when traveling. Instead, they simply activate the Connect i1 service directly on the X5. The new Mobile X5 goes on sale in March. Pricing wasn't announced, but all of new Mobile's handset costs less than $250. You'd think that'd be a feature we'd have had years ago. I mean, it makes so much sense to not have to deal with trying to get the little SIM card stuck into your phone. And, and of course, now with all the different band supports and the different sizes of SIM cards, it just uh, doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, and I guess the nice thing here is that, you know, what you're really talking about is the ability to use data at local rates and on high-speed networks, uh, which is something that, uh, you know, is obviously a, a big need for most people when they're traveling is the ability to, you know, look up maps, do quick searches for restaurants or, you know, attractions and stuff like that or business as you're working through things. Uh, you would much rather have that high-speed connection than stuck on a lower, slower next connection if, if all possible. Alcatel Thursday announcing the A3XL, uh, the first in a new line of premium affordable mobile phones. The A3XL is a massive 6-inch 720p HD display, uh, calling out the phone's fingerprint sensor for biometric security. Uh, the phone is powered by a MediaTek processor, gig of RAM, 8 gigs of storage, memory card support, and uh, it will be uh, will have a 3,000 milliamp hour battery and will have support for the 4G networks um, uh, of AT&T and T-Mobile, but not LTE. Uh, Alcatel says the phone will be sold overseas, though it plans to expand the A-series over time. And finally, in Android hardware, if you value your camera over everything else on your phone, the Kodak uh, Ect, uh, Ectra, uh, Ectrata, uh, I'm not sure how this is pronounced, smartphone will be sold in the U.S. starting this spring. Uh, the Billet Group, the company that manufactures the device, says it's available for pre-order in April, $549. Uh, the device has a 21-megapixel Sony sensor with an aperture of f2 and dual LED flash. It includes optical image stabilization, phase detection autofocus, and can capture 4K video. The front-facing camera has a 13-megapixel sensor, 5-inch full HD screen, MediaTek Helio X20 processor, 3 gigs of RAM, 32 gigs of storage, 3,000 milliamp-hour battery. It runs Android 6.0 Marshmallow advanced camera applications such as uh, features such as Booka, HDR, Panorama, and manual mode. It's been available in Europe for the past few months, just now coming to the U.S. So strangely, also this week, uh, Kodak announced that Ektachrome uh, film is coming back, which is uh, was a different variety from their Kodachrome uh, film, which was really popular. But, uh, you know, these days, the, the, the art of actually developing photos and developing film is uh, coming back a little bit here. So they've decided to relaunch, remaking uh, some, one of their, you know, one of their really old products. Yeah, and uh, thank you for pronouncing that. Ektra, the KTR was throwing me off. So anyway, the uh, um, the phone itself, um, obviously a, a, a digital version of whatever that is. So um, there you go. 
in other news, Casio Wednesday announcing the WSD F20, a second-generation smartwatch among the first to include Android Wear 2.0 from Google. Like last year's WSD F10, the F20 is a fully ruggedized wearable that focuses on fitness and other outdoor activities. It meets mil-spec 810G for protection against abuse and is water-resistant to 50 meters. The watch includes a dual-display uh, mode that can flip to monochrome and help conserve battery. The biggest improvement over the original is the addition of GPS. Moreover, the WSD F20 includes a low-power GPS mode that can track the wearer's location on downloadable maps, even if the watch is offline. It extends the wearable's uh, ability to track fitness activities in areas where phone coverage is not available. Uh, the WSD F20 will ship later this year. Pricing expected to be uh, pr- uh, expensive at $500. In software news this week, an unlikely item from Samsung, the maker of most things Android, has followed through on a promise from last year and made the Gear 2, Gear 3, and Gear Fit 2 compatible with iOS. iPhone owners can download the Gear S application to use with their Samsung-branded wearables. Samsung says that the Gear uh, S features available to iOS phones will vary a bit by device, but all users can expect to use the GPS, speedometer, and other sensors for tracking workouts and monitoring fitness. Fitness tools include distance and route traveled, pace, calories, and heart rate. The Samsung Gear S application is free to download from the iTunes App Store. Garmin this week announcing its InReach series of satellite communicators. These standalone handheld devices can also be paired with any Android, iOS, or Windows 10 smartphone to provide satellite-based text messaging and GPS mapping to your phone, even when there is no cellular coverage. The devices use Iridium's global satellite network for messaging, letting the devices send and receive text messages with any cell phone number, email address, or another InReach device. Users can set up the devices to provide regular location updates for the mapping portal, so friends and family can follow the progress of an expedition. An SOS function can let the first responders and family know when you're in trouble and exactly where you are. The base model in Reach SE Plus will sell for $400, while the in Reach Explorer Plus adds uh, topo maps, compass, biometric altimeter, and accelerometer for an additional $50. Both models will be available later this quarter. Well, I don't follow the market of these, you know, the Iridium-based uh, messaging devices or, or phones. I'm kind of surprised that something like this on a mainstream provider hasn't really existed before. I would almost think that, uh, you know, for for some people, being having that kind of like a fallback for uh, text messaging via satellite would be a really uh, popular thing to have, and especially in a bunch of rural, really rural areas that, that you know exist pretty heavily out here in the in the United States. Well, that's a good point, and you know it's obviously nice to uh, you know have to have that fallback, but at the cost of you know call it you know four to five hundred dollars. I think that market's a little bit limited. Um, you know, certainly there are people that could benefit from it. I'm thinking like farmers or ranchers, people that are out and about and, and trying to communicate. And perhaps they already have um, the equipment that they need and they don't need something like this. But um, either way, um, if you happen to have a need for it, you can pick one of these things up for, like I said, $400 if need be. Uh, Google this week said that the Nexus 6 from Motorola should receive the Android 7.1.1 update in the days ahead. The updated system software installs the new app shortcuts, round app icons, and image-enabled keyboard with new emoji and various bug fixes. The Nexus 6 does not get Google Assistant. Knowledgeable users can install Android 7.1.1 using factory images from Google's website, but the update will be distributed over the air soon. 
And Verizon this week rolled out an update for the Samsung Galaxy Note 7, effectively bricking the device by not allowing it to be recharged. The device can still be powered up by plugging it in, but no charge will be provided to the battery. AT&T and Sprint are expected to release a similar update this week. T-Mobile has already done so. This device is very strange because it's, uh, you know, people are clinging on to it. And I wonder, uh, you know, they're going and hacking and, and probably working around these battery charging issues and keeping the update from actually hitting their phone. And it, 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 you just really wonder why. I know it's a great device, but there will be another note uh, next year or something, you know, they'll maybe call it different, but it'll be the same device and even better. Just get something in, in between here. It's just not worth it. And it's, you know, one of those things where, I mean, you can't take it on a plane, uh, you know, of course you, you could, but you're not supposed to. Um, but uh, it, it's not one of those devices that it, you can like use out in the public. And maybe that's kind of the point why people want to keep it is because it's like it's, it's a forbidden fruit. So you want to keep it right. I, absolutely. I guess that would be it. But I sure wouldn't want to keep it around because uh, I wouldn't want it to uh, potentially catch fire and burn my house or burn my car down. You know, it'd be interesting if they would have just done something like releasing a battery pack that you could have put on this thing, and then it, it effectively the, the the internal battery get disabled, and then you use the external battery pack. No, no, no reason. I'm sure there's no. battery packs out there for it, right? So you could just do that and keep it up and keep it running because all just well, needs. Yeah, if it runs, basic, but but it won't connect to the networks now, right? Because haven't they blacklisted the serial numbers uh, even from the networks, even if you don't have this update? Oh, I guess it yet. Yeah, well, I don't know if, if they've gone that far. I thought it was just the charging. So maybe it's it's both, right? They would brick it so that, yeah. Well, either way, if they haven't yet, they're going to probably do that, I would imagine. I think the actual release from Samsung was just not allowing a recharge. But um, but yeah, there, there you go. Uh, just one uh, question this week. It comes uh, from Jermaine, uh, and he says, thank you for putting together the great podcast. I've listened to everyone of the shows and all the unlock shows, they're full of great information showing the progression of cell phone technology. My question is about the iPhone. We've seen it revolutionize the industry and change the way we all use cell phones. Last year, we saw the iPhone lose a bit of momentum. What kind of innovations do they need to put uh, to do to put distance between it and the high-end Android devices like the Galaxy series and the Google Pixel? Um, so from an interesting perspective of this, uh, it's January 8th. January 9th of 2007, was the day that Steve Jobs uh, set foot on stage and first announced the iPhone. And if you remember the way that he did it, um, he basically said, we've got three new products. We've got um, a, a widescreen touch-controlled iPod. Uh, we've got a new mobile phone, and we've got a breakthrough internet communications device. And then, of course, quickly, uh, everyone realized that he was talking about the same device and the iPhone. And um, if you haven't, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of sites that are going to be doing anniversary posts about the fact that uh, that this happened now 10 years ago. Um, and you'll probably find a link to the video. Go and watch it. It was 10 minutes or 10, 15 minutes long. Um, and it's just amazing. Um, I recall uh, references being made to Blackberries, Trios, the Motorola Q made an appearance. I think it was the Nokia E63. Uh, made its way in there. And so um, and just to, to hear those references um, was was very interesting. Of course, talking about he had to explain to people how to use this thing because there wasn't a capacitive touchscreen device on the market at that point. Uh, and, you know, talked about, well, you're not going to not want to use your your stylus. No one wants a stylus. So use your fingers. This is how you do it. Um, and just kind of went through this whole this whole process. So um, that was 10 years ago. And I, I, I mentioned that in such detail because you have to realize 
realize how far we've come. We were talking about trios. We were talking about devices that had attached keyboards to them. And now, just 10 years later, we're, we're talking about basically every device that's coming out, a couple exceptions here and there, but uh, looking the same as what the iPhone did 10 years ago. And that is pretty revolutionary in and of itself of a way that they changed the industry. And so I, 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 I have some thoughts on this one, but I'll, I'll kick it over to Joy for his comments first. Right. And what, what, and you kind of said it in there too. What I see the perspective is, you know, at the time there was, there was plenty of smartphones on the market, you know, Windows phones and and Palms were, you know, the real common ones. Blackberries were very popular as well. They weren't quite as much of a smartphone because they didn't have a lot of the uh, customizable email and web browsing and and, and other application supports that, uh, that Windows Mobile and Palm, uh, Palm OS had at the time. Uh, And and, and of course, even when the first uh, iPhone came out, it, 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 really didn't support much of anything other than a web browser and like you said an ipod and a phone and it didn't have 3g at the time it didn't have a lot of things that other phones smartphones had at the time and it was kind of laughed at and of course it wasn't for me it 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 it, but it was for you mickey and uh you know having that ipod functionality built in allowed them to cannibalize their entire ipod market but it also gave them the instant built-in customer base where if somebody was uh, looking at, oh, I need a new iPod. Well, why wouldn't I get a new iPhone? And that right there was able to just get the mass amount of customers in the door. And of course, with the mobile web browsing, it was a very attractive feature that did not really exist like that on other devices. In addition, like you said, the touchscreen kind of revolutionized that particular way of interfacing at, from a custom-built OS, whereas Palm and Windows Mobile were both stylus-based, where you needed to hit that one little pixel uh, to do interfacing with the device. You know, it's interesting. One of the, the comments that you made in there was that you know, when they released this thing, it basically cannibalized that iPod line. Um, and really, if you think about it in another way, what it did is it accelerated the growth of the iPod line and it transitioned kind of from iPods over to phones. Uh, if they would not have introduced a phone or introduced a phone that didn't have an iPod in it, um, it wouldn't have been the same type of thing. It would have just been a very kind of generic, uh, you know, thing, although it's, it's hard to even imagine now a phone that wouldn't control your music. Like, well, how is that even possible that they wouldn't have done that if you could have done everything else. But, um, you know, it, it was it was like their way of saying, we're going to take the next step forward in order to make sure that the iPod moves forward. This is going to be an integral part of this. And to this day, of course, it still is. It is. And of course, you can sync your iPhone 7. Uh, you know, I do it with the iTunes, with the library that would have been compatible back with iPods way back then. And it's, uh, you know, that's what really uh, solidified their position then. And, and of course, smartphones of the time could could play music, but you did not have that uh, capability to manage the iTunes library and manage the music like iTunes did back then. So, you know, from the what does Apple have to do? I mean, most of it, uh, I think, comes down to usability and experience. And, you know, you talk about, you know, who's got the the, the, the best specs and that tech superiority um, is always been owned by Android hardware. And I don't think Apple um, is ever going to be competitive with that, at least just, you know, not where they're at. Uh, it's just not what they're thinking about. And, you know, you take like a wireless charging, you know, as a, a topic or a quick charge as a topic. And, you know, they, you can't, you can't do that stuff. And it's been, um, I think from, from a customer perspective, there's, there's been this, like, why is this, this not included when it's included on all this Android stuff. And I, I think they are, they're looking at it from a, okay, so we, we, 
probably want to include something that's convenient, but we've got to make sure that it's right. And so the Apple Watch is a good example of that. Um, there's still a lot of watches that are out there that you have to physically connect a wire to, uh, that there's contacts on it. Or uh, as an example, on the new AirPods, you know, there are still a lot of earbuds out there that have these connectors on them that, uh, that you, you're sticking like a metal contact in your ear versus what they've done with that. So I think it comes down to that, that again, that usability and that experience. And once they figure out um, you know, wh- it, how something is going to function, that's when it then gets included. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the generic term, the generic conversation around what's going to happen. Right. And what kind of innovations do they need? You know, going to the actual question, you've got to put distance. You know, they may not really have something for quite some time. Uh, you know, we've had a few major innovations uh, as far as hardware goes with the the iPhone. The one was the a big jump when they went to uh, the retina screen uh, for the iPhone 4. That was a really massive improvement in the, the resolution of, of devices. And that kind of revolutionized even an entire market of screens uh, creating high DPI screens all over the place. Uh, We saw a big kind of somewhat, uh, you know, for the iPhone, we saw a jump with the LTE with the iPhone 5. But, uh, you know, the fingerprint sensor has been kind of kind of cool. Uh, 3D Touch has now come out. That's kind of cool. That wasn't something that really existed in other devices. Uh, But really, they don't have major, major ones that often. Uh, that leapfrogged them ahead, and and it's you know going to become even harder for them to do. Uh, but eventually they'll come up with something none of us expected, and it'll appear. But uh, the days of you know having that massive growth may be over for the actual iPhone itself. Yeah, I mean you know you look at what changed with the iPhone Seven. I mean the design was largely the same. They just removed the headphone jack, and um, not that it really matters, um, you know, because you're you're either you care or you don't. Uh, and it was interesting, Joey, as you and I were talking about this, I, you know, you have you have a obviously set or sets of these Apple headphones, but you've never actually used one of them. Is that be- because you don't listen to music on your phone when you listen to music? You're doing it on uh, on your iPod or I mean on your iPad or um, are you just now you're just using your own headphones and now just using a dongle or how, how are you listening to music? I just don't. I, I do not use my iPhone to play music other than actually through its own speaker. If I'm in an area where there's no other people around, I'll, I'll play something over its speaker just as a kind of a background uh, noise thing. I do not typically listen to music over the over it. Uh, um, I, the headphones I was using, I had some old Logitech uh, Ultimate Ears and they, the cord just got uh, mangled on them. So I have uh, I was kind of using that with the iPad sometimes and I have yet to uh, connect the uh, lightning to three and a half millimeter dongle and or the the actual lightning uh, ear pods that the phone came with. I have I've not used either of those things. Do you keep them at hand or are they just sitting in a box in a closet? Typically they're on hand because uh, I always yeah. carry the iPad with me uh, and they're in the iPad case. So I usually those things are no more than a couple feet away from me at all times. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have uh, I, I haven't really tried um to, to reconcile how that's going to work and, you know, with not having any sort of way to charge and listen to wired headphones in the future. But maybe it's not as big of a deal as, uh, you know, as we're all making it or maybe it is. And this is going to be something that they're going to go back on, though. I, I really struggle to see that. I, it doesn't seem like they will. Oh, no, of course not. And of course, typically, uh, you know, if your screen is off, you can listen to music for about, you know, 18 months on the battery. So it's not typically going to draw a lot 
uh, of uh, power while you're listening to music. So that's the, the that's the one thing that's good about uh, the, you know the one thing that's that kind of helps it along a little bit by not having a secondary port for charging. Gotta uh, get back into the the syncing of music thing. I just I haven't done that in a number of years, and you know I just have gone to streaming services because I didn't want to manage music. But there is something to having that music on your device that you can just scroll through and and find uh, stuff a little bit easier. Although it is pretty darn easy to search for music through the streaming services. But um, either way, uh, the going back to it though, Jermaine, you know the the other thing is you know there are other. Uh, I'll just say the kind of system type of services that have uh, kind of made their way that some people use, some people don't. Um, you know, the ability to have the continuity functionality across multiple Apple devices is something that I think is of huge benefit. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, being able to see your iMessages and text messages across any device that you have that is signed into an iCloud account or to uh, be able to deal, uh, you know, with a phone call in any device is something that I do quite a bit, make a lot of phone calls over the iPad just because the battery is is much better. And I, I know I can uh, make it a lot longer during the day with the iPad. But um, you know, th- those are the types of things. I mean, at some point, maybe they're they're going to tie into iCloud on the web so that there that stuff can be transferred over to the Windows side where you can message through there. I mean, I'm not sure if that's like an incredibly interesting thing that's going to be revolutionary because certainly that's not doing anything for the phone hardware itself. But um, you know, by kind of un uh, unencumbering or un um, you know, unbundling that phone number uh, with the iMessage piece, I think is was really kind of the catalyst for that. And then they've been able to do more with that as well now um, so that you can, you know, again, you can make phone calls in, from your computer, from your watch, from your iPad, whatever you want to do. Um, but what does the phone look like? I, I, you know, they might change the design slightly, but, you know, the screen is pretty good. The cameras are going to get marginally better. Um, you know, we're, I can't imagine we're going to take off any more buttons uh, you know, or ports or anything like that. Cause we're down to just the one, um, we now have no home button. It's just a, you know, a haptic thing. So, you know, they, they've changed the things, uh, with the design that is still largely the same as what it was 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, you look at what an iPhone seven versus what the original iPhone looks like. And they're hardly, you know, they're, you look on the front of them. If you looked at them from five feet away, um, you know, you would hardly be able to tell the difference if all you saw was that front uh, other than the size, of course. But, um, you know, but then that that's where the similarities stop because they've just come that far with just how the things are, are operating. It's like how the computer industry has been. What, when's the last time you saw a, like a, a really innovative thing happen on a computer? It's all these like it, things that are just kind of like slight changes or someone's doing something really specific. I saw a laptop that came out of CES that had three screens on it where the screen slid out from behind the, the main screen. And they were all 4K, four, three 4K screens on a laptop. Like, you know, certainly I think there's, you know, there are ridiculous things that could happen with phones in the same type of regard. But is Apple going to get involved with them? No, they're not. Yeah, probably not because it's, uh, you know, they kind of like to go slow and steady for the most part, other than having, you know, features that they can really, really sell and, and uh, people really want to have. Yeah. So uh, very, uh, very interesting question. Uh, Not easily answerable, uh, which is, I think, was kind of your point here, Jermaine. And uh, we do appreciate you uh, writing into us and uh, asking the question and getting us to uh, think and talk a little bit about it. If you have any questions or comments for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can send an email to questions at the cell phone uh, or you can give us a call 650-999-0524. We'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much as always for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com. 